Underrated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And today we are going pure genre fiction with fantasy and sci-fi galore. And this week we have got so much goodness to share with you that we are going to skip our writing segment. But don't worry, you won't even notice it. It'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get started, Emily, do you have a highlight for the week? Yes, my highlight is that it was my birthday two days ago. Happy birthday to you! Thank you. So it's my first lockdown birthday, but to be honest, I don't really do anything for my birthday anyway, so it was fine. (laughs) I just had a chill day, did some reading, watched a couple films, got fish and chips, and drank Prosecco. And it was good. Got lots of books, obviously. Naturally. Um, and lots of very lovely book-themed gifts as well. <laughs> and my mum made me the best cake. It's so good. It looked so good. Yeah. It's Malteser and Milky Bar flavoured. And it's like a checkerboard pink and white on the inside. That's so cool! <laughs> How did she make... Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. I'll send you a photo of the inside later. Yeah. And yeah, so it was very nice. That was my highlight. (laughs) How about you? Well, my highlight, I mean, honestly, my highlight was probably your birthday, even though I wasn't there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Apart from that, my highlight this week is honestly being able to breathe, because I was (laughs) was sick with the cold, not COVID, luckily, in our week between recordings. So sorry, listeners, if if I sound a bit funny. because that sucked and I was properly a wuss Mm. about it (laughs) big giant child (laughs) so basically I just wanted to remind everyone who is listening right now appreciate your sinuses and your non-sore throats and your lack of awareness of your ears take a very deep breath (laughs) savor that feeling and the next time that you have a cold you can at least say that you appreciated it (laughs) yeah I do always think that when I have a cold (laughs) Like, I'm always like, oh, I take all this for granted. Yeah. I can just breathe normally. I know. (laughs) It made me really sad. Anyway, let's get to it. What are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo. Hey, we all knew this was coming. Yeah, if you follow me on social media, this is not a surprise. So, <laughs> this is a duology. Six of Crows came out in 2015 and Crooked Kingdom came out in 2016. And it's preceded by the Shadow and Bone trilogy and followed by the King of Scars duology. And the last book of that duology comes out this month. But I have read neither of those. Uh, I just jumped straight into the middle. Why not? <laughs> exactly. But they all come under the umbrella title of the Grishaverse. Oh. So Grisha are people who have like different kinds of magical powers. And basically the biggest conflicts in the whole book universe are normally about those powers okay. in some way or another. Now, I thought this was going to be a quick episode for me. <laughs> because the series is so plot driven that obviously I can't say too much about it. Mm. So I thought I'd just be coming on here and telling you about a couple things I liked and that would be that. But then 
there was a panel for the new Shadow and Bone Netflix adaptation mm. that some of the cast, the producer and Lee Burdigo herself was on. And that show is going to be a combination of Shadow and Bone and Six of Crows. And in the panel, they talked a lot about an element I want to discuss today. So basically, my short episode turned into quite a long essay. (laughs) Um, So obviously, (laughs) as we mentioned before, what I'm going to do today is skip the writing chat, use the extra time to talk about an element of this book, or both of these books, really in depth. (laughs) Love it. I'm ready. First, I'll do a bit of an overview. So this was very much a BookTok-inspired purchase. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of BookTok series that I'm not interested in at all, to be honest. There's a lot of YA fantasy, which obviously I'm not a stranger to, but I am quite picky about the kind of YA fantasy books that I like. Mm. But Six of Crows intrigued me because it's marketed as Ocean's Eleven meets Game of Thrones. Okay. Um, And I like both of those things. (laughs) And also, I don't think I've ever read a heist novel before. It's something I associate more with films. Yeah. So that aspect really pulled me in. Yeah, I don't think I've ever read a heist novel before either. No, I can't think of any. So I also wanted to point out that I mentioned this series a few episodes back because I read and loved Ninth House by Lee Bardugo, Mm. which is an adult fantasy. And I said, like, oh, I'm going to read Six of Crows soon, but it's YA, so I don't think it'll be quite as dark as Ninth House. But oh, was I wrong. (laughs) (laughs) The youth are dark. (laughs) It's very dark. I would kind of class it as kind of like your upper YA level. If you compare it to the Netflix series, I believe that's going to be a 15 in the UK, Mm. which is normally equated to an R rating in the US, which is like 17. Yeah. So, like, that's the kind of vibrat and in the books there is lots of physical and emotional trauma happening and the violence is also very graphic so for anyone who's read it you'll know what I mean when I say the eyeball scene I had to put the book down at that point <laughs> because it made me feel sick so <laughs> Emily's face right now just recalling that scene <laughs> it's horrible <laughs> So, what is the series about? Six of Crows centres around a group of six criminals set on pulling off an impossible heist. They are Kaz, Inej, Jesper, Wylan, Nina and Matthias. And just very quickly, I'm going to read out their character descriptions from the blurb. Mm -hmm. Um, So, not in the same order, it describes them as a convict with a thirst for revenge, a sharpshooter who can't walk away from a wager, a runaway with a privileged past, a spy known as the Wraith, a heart render using her magic to survive the slums, and a thief with a gift for unlucky escapes. Intriguing. They're, they're all babes. Mm. We love them all dearly. And they all have their own special skills, and they have to infiltrate a military stronghold, which has never been breached before. But if they make it, they get lots and lots of money, um, or Kruge, I think is how you pronounce it. Looked up a pronunciation guide, as usual, but it's a made-up word, so who knows if I'm pronouncing it right. Nice. <laughs> so, um, obviously not going to talk about the plot of Crooked Kingdom too much, because spoilers, 
but there is still a heist element to that book as well. And so the world building and like the twists and turns surrounding the heist and the various other jobs in the zoology are really exciting to read. Generally couldn't put them down, just had to keep reading to know how they got out of each situation. And one thing I'll say about setting is that Birdigo does this really clever thing between the two books, which is that in Six of Crows, the characters are all very much in their element. Like they plan around everyone's specific skills. However, in Crooked Kingdom, they're like scrambling a bit more. They're having to like work harder to get things to go in their favour. Mm. And there's also a really interesting dynamic with their city, Ketterdam. So Ketterdam is kind of like Amsterdam meets Gotham. Okay. I found out recently that Keter means someone whose beliefs deviate from the common religion, which definitely makes sense for this very sinful city. (laughs) (laughs) And so in Six of Crows, the characters kind of like domineer the city. They're comfortable, they're in control, they kind of know how to play the city like a game. Okay. Whereas in Crooked Kingdom, the city is pushing them into a corner and they don't have the control they once did, uh, for reasons. <laughs> and those those things are never like spelled out to you, per se. They're just really well thought out details that I noticed and love. Because it's like an effective storytelling technique. It makes the two books feel very different, but they're still obviously connected. Yeah, and it's good to like introduce them in that way that's sort of comfortable. And then once you've yeah once you've grown comfortable with them, then I imagine it's a good effect when they get knocked off killer. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And yeah, what really got me attached to the series is the characters and the relationships between them, because each character and each dynamic between those different characters is unique, and as well, each character comes with their own past trauma. So setting the series over two books gives go the time to explore the journeys of everyone in depth Mm. you get the six characters points of view throughout both books which maybe sounds like a lot but honestly it's it's so well done and you really get to know every character inside and out because you're getting their perspective but also five other people's thoughts on them as well Mm -hmm. and so that leads me to what i'd like to talk about today when I talked about Ninth House, I talked a lot about Verdugo's writing style and her world building, and those are things I loved about this duology too, but today I wanted to focus on character, Okay. and I'm essentially just going to do a deep dive on one character. So I literally could have done this episode on any of the six of them, but I decided to go my favourite, obviously. obviously, and I'm going to talk about how... Birdigo writes him, the external influences that inspired his character, why I find him interesting, and then I'll read out a few quotes about him. Some are from his perspective and some are from others' perspectives. And I should add, although I'm going to go into all this detail, it's still spoiler-free. All my quotes are from the first book, Six of Crows, and most of the points I'm going to make were in the Shadow and Bone panel that I mentioned earlier, and that was a spoiler-free panel. Cool. So I promise I'm not going to ruin anything about his character arc or the plot or anything like that. You're so responsible. How good is she? (laughs) (laughs) I just don't want to 
you know, ruin a book for someone. I want them to read it and, like, appreciate it. We love, we love it. Okay, so I am going to tell you about Kaz Brecker today. Okay. He is described in the blurb as a criminal prodigy, and he's also the thief with a gift for unlikely escapes. I knew that was going to be your favourite. <laughs> I don't know, when you read the blurb, you were like smiling as you read that bit, and I was like, that's her favourite. I love them all, but he like, he just, like, he just makes it as my favourite. Nice. So he is not a Grisha, he's not magic. He is 17, and a high-ranking member of the Dregs, which is one of the gangs in the city of Ketterdam. He runs the Crow Club, which is, like, basically a casino and he's also very business-minded and he is also talented at sleight of hand and picking locks which is why he's good at thieving Mm. and he's also very calculating he always seems to be like at least three steps ahead of everyone else and he is approached to do this heist and so he recruits five other members to help him hence the six crows or the crow babies as i like to call them (laughs) so i thought i would read kaz's introduction in the book this is from Inej's point of view. Kaz rescued Inej from a brothel where she was sex trafficked to because he learned that she's very skilled at sneaking up on people and he thought that she would be very useful to him. So he brings her to the dregs instead and trains her to be a very skilled assassin called the Wraith. Mm. And I adore Inej. She's such a little badass but she has so much heart as well and she is the person who knows Kaz the best so I think it's very fitting that she gets to be the one to introduce him. So the scene goes, Kaz Brecker didn't need a reason. Those were the words whispered on the streets of Ketterdam, in the taverns and coffee houses, in the dark and bleeding alleys of the pleasure district known as the Barrel. The boy they called Dirty Hands didn't need a reason any more than he needed permission to break a leg, sever an alliance, or change a man's fortunes with the turn of a card. Of course they were wrong, Inej considered as she crossed the bridge over the black waters of the Burz Canal to the deserted main square that fronted the exchange. Every act of violence was deliberate, and every favour came with enough strings attached to stage a puppet show. Kaz always had his reasons. Inej could just never be sure they were good ones. That's such a good opening line. I know. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, Freddie Carter, who's going to play Kaz in the Shadows on Bone show, calls that the single best introduction of a character ever. Bold. And I mean, it, it is a pretty good one. I, mm. I have to agree with him. Obviously, oh, it's so windy. I don't know if you can hear that. But yeah, I, I can. <laughs> Sorry, guys. There's a storm. Yeah, can I just apologise for the weather? <laughs> yeah, so obviously there's so much more to his character than just these couple paragraphs but it tells you a lot about what you need to know about Kaz in such a tiny space so he has a reputation very violent one but as Inej points out he's actually a very calculated person so he never does anything without an ulterior motive Mm. so I love that in his two paragraph introduction you have the lines Kaz Brecker didn't need a reason and Kaz always had his reasons. Yeah. He is like a walking contradiction and he uses that to his advantage and that is why I find him fascinating to read. Just say attractive. <laughs> mm, well, I mean, yeah, but also like, 
know. It's weird. Like, I, I, it's kind of hard to think of him in a romantic way. I'll say. Okay. Without going into spoilers. Okay. <laughs> also, he's seventeen. Oh yeah, I forgot that. I was thinking he was like a grown up. Yeah. Uh, well, I, to be fair, I think they have aged up the Netflix characters. Mm. So I think I can find him attractive in the show. We'll put it that way. Yeah, let's go with that. That seems safe. Let's go with that. So there are two physical features of Kaz that are widely spoken about and that add to that mystery of who he really is. And one is that he always wears black leather gloves. And I'm going to read this quote out first before I talk about them. Okay. Why do you wear the gloves, Mr. Brecker? Kaz raised a brow. I'm sure you've heard the stories, each more grotesque than the last. Kaz had heard them too. Brecker's hands were stained with blood. Brecker's hands were covered in scars. Brecker had claws and not fingers because he was part demon. Brecker's touch burns like brimstone. A single brush of his bare skin caused your flesh to wither and die. Pick one, Kaz said as he vanished into the night. Thoughts already turning to 30 million Kruge and the crew he'd need to help him get it. They're all true enough. Love that energy. <laughs> yeah. So, yet again, this is Kaz using his reputation to his advantage. You might remember that Inej refers to Kaz's dirty hands. Mm. That's like his given name on the street. And it works in conjunction with the gloves, right? Because dirty hands could mean all manner of things it could be literal like there's the stories about his hands being stained with blood so he wears the gloves Mm. or it's more metaphorical his hands are dirty because he's killed people as well as the violence he's a lot picking a thief and can do like magic tricks and count cards and stuff like that which i think insinuates a kind of dirtiness to his hands as well yeah like how you'd say a thief has sticky fingers like that kind of idea Mm mm-hmm it's just such a clever name to give him and you do find out why he wears the gloves which I'm obviously not going to say but even when you do it doesn't take away all these things I've just listed it still just feeds into the story of why he wears them like a self-fulfilling metaphor yeah kind of yeah and yeah I said there's two physical features of Kaz and the second is that he walks with a cane you do know the reason for the cane he fell off a roof a few years back and broke his leg so there's less mystery about why he has the cane versus the like why he wears the gloves Mm. but what does still track is that he uses the image of being a young man with a cane to his advantage so the cane which has a crow head as the handle is weighted it's built to shatter bones and he does remark that people often underestimate him in physical fights because he has the cane and a limp, but he uses that element of surprise to his gain. Mm. Berdugo made this a part of his character because she herself walks with a cane. Huh. So Berdugo has a degenerative condition called osteonecrosis. So she says this basically translates to bone death, which sounds kind of gothy and romantic, but actually means that every step I take is painful and that I sometimes need to walk with a cane. It's no coincidence I chose to create a protagonist struggling with similar symptoms and I often felt that Kaz and I were limping along this road together. Well, that's really sweet and really badass. Oh, definitely. And yeah, as well, in the 
Shad's own bone panel, she describes Kaz as a kind of superhero with the same symptoms as her. Freddie Carter as well talked about how important it is to him to portray that because he knows how important it is to her. And he also quoted from the book, like his point of inspiration for playing that aspect of Kaz. So I thought I would just read that quote out as well. This is from Kaz's perspective. And I'm kind of picking up like mid-sentence because of spoilers. So basically it's explained that he's 14 and fell off a roof and this is the aftermath of that. Okay. The bone didn't set right and he limped ever after. So he'd found himself a fabricator and had his cane made. It became a declaration. There was no part of him that was not broken, that had not healed wrong, and there was no part of him that was not stronger for having been broken. The cane became a part of the myth he built. No one knew who he was. No one knew where he came from. He'd become Kaz Brecker, cripple and confidence man, bastard of the barrel. <laughs> Obviously, Bardugo has created like an anti-hero slash protagonist who is kind of inspirational, but you still have that element of Kaz who is concerned with his reputation mm. because, as he says, the cane becomes part of the myth of Kaz Brecker and it's worth pointing out this is a fantasy setting there are Grisha who can magically heal injuries but Kaz has opted not to do so so I think you can interpret that as him embracing his disability it makes him stronger um, as Freddie and Bardugo said but I would argue you could also view it as there being a part of him who's maybe punishing himself but the end product is still that he is a myth and that reputation is still his way of empowering himself because in the words of Flynn Rider, a fake reputation is all a man has. Um. <laughs> I mean, you know how much I went on about reputations and self-mythologising with the whole Taylor Swift thing, so that very much appeals to me. Yeah. Love that. Yes, I thought it I thought it would. <laughs> So yeah, as I said before, every character in this duology has some kind of trauma. In a way, it's what binds them all. And the books flash back every now and then to really dive into the characters and explain what their trauma is. And that does happen with Kaz. And Kaz's backstory is very, very dark, which I'm obviously not going to explain today. But what I will say is that his past and the gloves, the cane, the fact that he wants a certain reputation, like these all connect so well. <laughs> and I've basically described to you guys a lot of the like surface level stuff about Kaz, but if you read the books, you discover this whole other layer to him, which I've only hinted at today, but it, it really makes you understand where he's coming from. Intriguing. <laughs> And I wanted to share a quote, I think this is my last quote, that I just think sums up his personality really well. So this scene is from Matthias's point of view. Matthias is their inside man, essentially. He used to work at the place they were trying to infiltrate, but he's also a bit of an outsider to the group. He's a soldier, he's religious. He calls Kaz a demon a lot because he's obviously <laughs> a character full of tricks um, and even though they're not Grisha magic, Matthias has never seen anything like that before so he doesn't get it and in this quote 
he's asking Kaz how he learned sleight of hand and picking locks and like that kind of thing. Okay. Were you always good at locks? No. How did you learn? The way you learn about anything. Take it apart. And the magic tricks? Kaz snorted. So you don't think I'm a demon anymore? I know you're a demon, but your tricks are human. Some people see a magic trick and say, impossible. They clap their hands, turn over their money and forget about it 10 minutes later. Other people ask how it worked. They go home, get into bed, toss and turn, wondering how it was done. It takes them a good night's sleep to forget all about it. And then there are the ones who stay awake, running through the trick again and again, looking for that skip in perception, the crack in the illusion that will explain how their eyes got duped. They're the kind who won't rest until they've mastered that little bit of mystery for themselves. I'm that kind. You love trickery. I love puzzles. Trickery is just my native tongue. Oh, sweet line. (laughs) It's a good line. He has lots of good lines. But yeah, I just really like that quote. I think it sums up his personality pretty well and I guess it also makes it more believable (laughs) that he can pull off all his tricks, especially the ones relating to the heist because you're learning the backstory to it all and the fact that he's practiced for years and that's another thing to know about Kaz is that he's happy to play the long game as I said he's always like three steps ahead of everyone and that includes having set up like a lot of dominoes that will fall exactly how he wants when he needs them to Mm. and I think this quote about learning magic tricks is perhaps like a bigger allegory for that as well yeah definitely yeah i thought i would end this kaz Brecker deep dive by very very vaguely talking about his character art over the duology i think the clearest way you see his growth is through inej their relationship is for me probably the most compelling dynamic that's written into the group and i am using the word relationship in like the more general since mm. not necessarily them being a romantic couple because romance is not a big feature of this duology it is there for sure but it's realistic for this world in that it's shoved aside a lot because all the characters have a heist to pull off like romance is not the top of the list yes. <laughs> for anyone but yeah there is romance there is genuine friendship as well the crows are like a found family And there are also lots of moments for humour normally with the character interactions Mm -hmm. and definitely lots of heart as well, again, with the dynamics between everyone. Because obviously they are all anti-heroes, they've done bad stuff, but Bardugo gives them heart and motive, which makes you understand them and connect with them and root for them. But for me, Kaz and Inez's dynamic and the way that it evolves is very special. And the only bit that made me cry in this duology is a scene between the two of them. I'm impressed. <laughs> Those are big books. I know. Thank you. So I would have loved to deep dive into Inez because I love her so much. But I definitely had more than enough to say about Kaz. I suppose the one thing I didn't get to talk much about today is how genuinely scary he can be like we all know the bad boy trope in YA fantasy Mm -hmm. but in Six of Crows it's as if 
Bardugo has like dialed that like bad boyness up to like a hundred and she has left us with a genuinely disturbed and violent person. <laughs> yeah, a, vil- a villain. <laughs> Which is why I, I'm a bit like, mm, do I find him attractive? Because he's very scary. But he can also be very funny at times because he cannot shut up. You think he's going to be like the quiet brooding type of character at first look, mm. but he's not. <laughs> he always has like a scathing retort to fire at someone and he can't let stuff go and always has to have the last word. So all these sides of him add up to create what I think is a very fascinating character to both observe and also be in the head of. Like I like the complexity of him and his real self versus the mythologised self and how it all stemmed from a genuinely like heartbreaking past and how he does push himself to change for certain people. And just as I'm ending, I thought as well I'd just quickly say whether I'm going to read the other Grishaverse books or not, because I have been asked before. Nice. Um, and the answer is yes. But I started with Six of Crows because I knew it was the series I would like the most. And also it's not necessary to have read Shadow and Bone first. So I will read them all eventually, but what I'm looking forward to most right now is the Netflix series because it looks incredible. I've not been like this excited for a show in a very long time. The casting looks spot on for the crows and for the Shadow and Bone characters as well from like what I've heard from mm. other people and also the actors all love the books so I think that's a really good sign. Oh I love that. Yeah and just apologies if you follow me on social media because I have not stopped talking about it and I also just want to shout out that on the Shadow and Bone social media channels they've posted a video of the cast reacting to the trailer and I highly recommend it because it's adorable and I've watched it like 20 times it's so good. <laughs> I'm hyped for the show as well. To be fair, it looks really good. Like I've not watched, I've not watched the books. I've yeah, not, I've not watched the book, but but I intend to yeah. read the show. <laughs> I think it'll be really good. Yeah, because I the the Six of Crows stuff that will be in that series is prequel to these books, so I have absolutely no idea what is going to be in the show because I've not read Shadow and Bone, and they are making up the stuff that is going to be, you know, the Six of Crows part of it. So I'm very excited to see what it is. <laughs> so yeah, that is that is my essay on Kaz Brecker and the Six of Crows duology. I loved this series. I loved that it was two books as well because I think it's great to have another book to like continue the story, but also it's so complete and hasn't been dragged out any longer than it needs to be, which I appreciate as well. The world is great. There's magic, which I barely mentioned. The characters are diverse and the world is richer because of it. And it's just really like addicting to read all the action, all the heist stuff. And in the words of Freddie Carter, future Kaz Brecker, if you like heists and danger and drama, then the crows are probably for you. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> I felt like I monologued there, but hope you enjoyed. <laughs> I, I did. I did enjoy it. And I monologue every week, so. <laughs> that was great. Thank you. After all that. <sighs> Take a hold breath. Hold on, let me actually open. I'm going to open my can of Coke first. Oh, 
That's a great noise. <laughs> and what is your infatuation? My infatuation this week is one that I've been wanting to bring to the podcast for ages and I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited. <laughs> so it is the Wayfarer series by Becky Chambers, which is a sci-fi speculative fiction series. And today, because I've just read it, I'm going to be focusing on the fourth book in the series, The Galaxy and the Ground Within. But, and this is one of the reasons I love it, there's going to be no spoilers and there's no real consequence to me introducing you through the fourth book because this series is not really a series. Okay. (laughs) Okay? The Wayfarers are sci-fi novels and... I think I'd describe them more as interconnected stories rather than a linear Mm. series. Because rather than being like plot-driven space opera types, they're very character-driven, they're very light. Like you can see influences from things like Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. And each book has a new cast of characters and a new self-contained story. Ah, okay. But what I thought I'd do just before I get really into it, is I'm going to read a quick paragraph from the beginning of one of the chapters to give you an idea of the tone, because this is a really compelling series and the joy that I get from these books is unparalleled. (laughs) But it's not dark, and that's kind of one of the reasons that I love it. So this Mm. is just a random paragraph from the start of one of the characters' narrations. Sky full of space trash aside, it was a beautiful day. Gora's thin atmosphere made for a strikingly crisp canvas, and the habitat dome's dulling effect of this was minimal. Without water vapour to scatter its rays, the sunlight pierced down as cleanly as honed metal, leaving you with no illusion that it was anything but a star. And as for stars, they were out too, despite the sun being high. The satellite debris hid most of them from view, but the boulders shone through anyway, peppering the morning with an elegant tease of night. Were the sky not full of space trash, Roveg would have assumed Tupo was simply enjoying the view. And I'm just going to stop there, (laughs) because I need to explain more before I say any more. But I just really enjoyed how storybook that feels, but how unbelievably sci-fi it is at the same time. So that's what we're dealing with. But yeah, the thing that ties these books together is not the events of any of their narratives, it's the characters and the fact that they all exist in the same universe. And we learn more and more about that universe, um, which is called the Galactic Commons, with each book. So just for anyone that has never heard of this series, I'm just going to give a very quick overview. So the first book is called The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, which I think is maybe my favourite book title ever. It follows the crew of The Wayfarer which is a ship on an interstellar mission with a really basic found family structure. And that book does a lot of the world building of the Galactic Commons. You get like the time and the rules of space travel established, the history of this universe as it relates to our own, because it is speculative fiction, so humans have existed as we are now. Mm. And it introduces a few different types of aliens in a kind of manageable way. But then the second book, A Closed in Common Orbit, does not linearly follow on from that. It takes one of the side characters from a passing interaction of the first book and follows <laughs> them on a whole <laughs> on a whole different journey alongside a whole different cast. The third book, Record of a Spaceborn Few, repeats that 
taking a character that I think doesn't even appear but is just mentioned in the second book and following their journey and this one this is the final the fourth and final one the galaxy in the ground within and it is linked in a few different ways to all three of its preceding books but one thing that I love about it is that there's a character that is really often mentioned in the first book but never never seen and she okay. is she is one of the main narrators of this book so it's like a That's re- cool. it's a really satisfying full circle kind of thing what i love about that as a writer is that you could theoretically pick up any of those novels in any order and they would all make sense as standalones because you would pick up the mm-hmm. world building by inference but for anyone reading them in order they're easter eggs of like these other characters or planets or worlds or wherever that you will recognize and you don't really have to worry about spoilers between books so i'm going to talk about the galaxy and the ground within which was released just earlier this year because it's done something that you and i talked about just one or two episodes ago and i didn't realize this before i started reading it it is a covid story oh interesting i say it's a covid story it's a lockdown story which maybe is a little bit different but yeah we were asked a few episodes ago what we thought of media using the pandemic Mm. and then this one did it so i thought that i'd delve into the way that that's handled in this book it follows the narration of three different aliens or sapients as they're called given that the idea of an alien doesn't really exist in this world because there are so many different okay. species. So we have Roveg, who was in that first quote. He is a crustacean-like quellin with a taste for the finer things in life. He loves art and nice food. <laughs> we have Pei, an alien soldier, not alien, an alien soldier who is covered in scales and communicates using colours. They don't have a spoken language, but she can speak using a little voice box, which is pretty cool. And then we have Speaker, who is an Akarak, which is a great word, who is a a very tiny, I think, bird-like being, or maybe like sloth-like being, I don't really know. But she lives in a robotic suit that allows her to interact with other species because she can't breathe their air. Oh. Yeah. So those are your three main characters, and they are all space travellers stopping off on the planet Gora to refuel their ships and get supplies. Gora is interesting because it's a planet which has no life or real civilizations of its own. It is only used for stopover services. So it's basically like a giant like motel and service station, but it's a planet. So these three all land at a hub run by Ulu and her child Tupo who are fluffy, purple, llama-like creatures. Oh, they're so cute. Um, and they're called, <laughs> they're called Laru. That's what their species are. They're my favourites. I feel like that's clear from my tone. <laughs> I love I love Ulu and Tupo so much. But yeah, we're introduced to each character similar to what you were saying. First, by themselves, by their own narration, and then through the eyes of the others. And each chapter is narrated by a different one of these characters. So after they've all met and converged at the Five Hop One Stop, (laughs) which Tupo and Laru own, and they've all been introduced, is when the novel really kicks into motion. And I'm going to just read out the chapter that starts the action because I think it's brilliant and I think it's really well handling the lockdown thing. So, oh, just a note here. Tupo, the Laru child, is genderless. And the pronouns that Chambers uses is Z-Zer, 
because Laru don't choose a gender until they're adults. Side note on this, Chambers herself is just an amazing queer advocate. All of her texts fall into like the modern sci-fi tradition of being really inclusive without being tokenist because she deliberately mm. sets up different cultures around sex and gender through all of these different species. I could literally write a thesis on intersectional feminism and like LGBTQ <laughs> plus advocacy in these books. But anyway, that's just a side note for anyone that is interested. This chapter is from Speaker's point of view. Looking upward in a mech suit was difficult. The cockpit window allowed Speaker some degree of peripheral vision, but swinging her view properly up required manoeuvring the suit so it would tip her seated body backward. She wouldn't have thought to do this if she hadn't glanced up from the engine compatibility specs she'd been reading and seen the aliens in the garden pointing and shouting. Speaker hurried the suit out of the shed and tipped the torso so she could see. Gaseous white streaks now crisscrossed the sky. Clouds was her first thought, followed quickly by the realisation that Gora didn't have atmosphere enough to get clouds. This fact was confirmed as one of the streak's edges shifted from billowing white to the unmistakable colour of flame. Another like it appeared elsewhere, then another and another, and an ever-growing chorus of faraway fires and freefall. Heavy as the suit was, it could run pretty quickly. What's going on? She called as she ran to the others. The words exited the vox on the outside of her suit, but were lost in the din of everyone else yelling things of the same nature. What's happening? The Quellen cried. The alien came running over with a Larry child close by her side. Mum, the youngster said, rushing towards Ulu. Does the planet have emergency comms? The alien demanded. Tupo wolves herself under and through Ulu's legs. Mum, what is it? Some kind of alert system? The alien said. I... I... Ulu stared at the sky in shock, her mouth open and eyes wide. There's so many, the Quellen said. Could it... Oh, shit! A large explosion joined the fray, silent at this distance, but stomach-twisting all the same. Tumbling debris scattered from it, mere flecks in the sky, deceptively small. Something big was breaking into pieces, and it wasn't the only thing up there doing so. Everyone reacted in their own manner. The alien turned red as gore, the Laru's fur fluffed, the quellin threw each of his upper legs out to the side. Speaker sat motionless in her cockpit, every muscle tense, one thought piercing through the dozen tangled questions racing through her own head and in the voices of everyone around her. Tracker was up there. Tracker is her sister. The alien took charge. She moved decisively to Ulu, looked her in the eye, and said, Where's your sib tower? Ulu gulped air and pointed a paw down one of the paths. The alien ran. Speaker followed. The Ansible tower wasn't far, and Speaker caught up quickly, arriving just a few steps behind. The alien opened the manual access panel, pulled her scrib free of its belt holster, and looked around, searching for something not present. Her cheeks speckled purple with frustration. Speaker understood. The alien didn't have the tower's wireless access code and needed to plug her scrib directly into it. Speaker dug the suit's hands through the storage compartments attached to its midsection and received a standard intermix cable. Will this work? she said, extending the cable forward. The alien looked up with obvious surprise, as though she were only now registering Speaker's presence. Uh, I think so, she said, grabbing the cable with her long silver fingers. She held it both it and the scrub up, inspecting port and jack. Yeah, yeah, that'll work. 
She made the connections, giving Speaker a brief glance if she did so. Thanks. Ulu hurried up behind them, having seemingly pulled herself together. Try the emergency beacon network, she said. The channel is 333A. Her child was nearly attached to her side and the quellin was close behind. A broad streak of flame tore across the morning sky and Speaker felt as though her heart would burst from her chest. She had to get out of there. She had to get to track her. Whatever was happening, she and her sister needed to get away from it. Now. The alien gestured at the scrib screen. It responded to her command, displaying a dizzying stream of polychromatic flashes. This had meaning to the alien, assuredly, but Speaker winced at the sight, unable to look directly at it. The alien gestured again and said aloud, Disable colour translation. Enable clip audio playback. The scrib obeyed. A voice emerged, advising everyone to stay calm as we assess the situation. I can't stay calm if you don't tell me what the situation is, the Quellen huffed. Quiet, the alien said. The Quellen's frills bristled at that. The emergency broadcast continued. Refrain from calling emergency channels unless you are in actual need of assistance. We are aware of the situation and will have more information once we have properly assessed that a burst of static cut the voice off. Is ongoing. Don't halt all launch for the time. I just had this tower serviced, Ulu said frantically. I don't understand. It should be working. It's not the tower, Tupo said. Speaker turned the suit toward the child. Tupo was craning their neck out from under their mother's legs to look at the sky. They clung to Ulu, but their voice possessed the calm of a person who'd come to a terrible conclusion. Look. The adults all looked. The sky was nearly choked with smoke now, offset by flashes of flame. The debris had grown thicker, and chaotic though it was, the longer Speaker looked, the more she began to see shapes, angles, jagged edges the occasional glint of shattered photovoltaic blue. Satellites, Speaker said. It's the satellites. Rovegg stepped forward beside her, his many pointed feet tapping the ground. His voice came out a whisper. It's all the satellites. Dun dun dun! Very ominous. Yes! So the sky is falling. It's literally the metaphor for the whole pandemic is the sky is falling. I love it. It's so simple. But anyway, I know that was a long quote, but it's immediately followed by this little tiny bit that is uh, styled to look like an emergency like government notice. And I just thought this would be fun to to read out. So (laughs) it says, um, urgent update. This is an urgent message from the emergency response team aboard the GC Transit Authority Regional Management Orbiter, GORA system. As both standard Ansible and linking channels are currently unavailable, we will be communicating via the emergency beacon network for the time being. We ask that you leave your scribs locked to this channel until proper communications are restored. This is an emergency. Please shelter within your ships, homes and any other reinforced structure until you receive an all-clear message from the GCTA. Habitat domes may not provide adequate protection against large debris that survives re-entry. Please prepare to continue sheltering for at least one GC standard day. At this time, the Goran satellite network is experiencing severe cascade collisions and orbital destabilisation. As this unexpected event is still developing, we cannot provide full details as to the nature of this system failure. However, we are working closely with Goran orbital cooperative representatives in orbit to assess the situation and our joint agencies are working as fast as possible to provide you with more detailed information. 
as the Goran Orbital Cooperative is likewise unable to access standard comms channels on the surface, the GCTA will be handling public updates for as long as necessary. We do not yet have an estimate as to when an all-clear will be possible. We are asking all travellers to anticipate a delay of approximately one GC standard day. We understand this will cause major disruptions to travel plans, but launches and landings pose an extreme risk in current conditions. Any attempts to travel to or from the Goran surface at this time will result in an immediate suspension of your pilot's licence and possible confiscation of your vessel by the GCTA, provided your vessel remains intact. Thank you for your patience. We are all in this together. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds a little familiar. Yeah, it doesn't! (laughs) How talented to be able to write such good jargon, honestly. (laughs) And on that note, actually, the neologisms in this book, the made-up words like um, linkings and scrib and ansible, whatever, are so well done. Like, I don't know, obviously Mm. I've read them all, but like, I feel like they're intuitive that you're never unsure of what's meant by those in the context. Like, you can, you can get it. Yeah, there's a few, like, series and, you know, like, fantasy things I've read where it is like that and you have absolutely no idea what the word should mean but you somehow get it exactly Um, i feel like that's a a real talent (laughs) yeah i really really appreciate that it's like there's enough of a link to the association of the word that you you know it instinctively i think that's just such a talent what i think is great about this is obviously she's mimicking the official language of the pandemic it's very deliberate but rather than bringing it too close to home by making it a disease that's prompted this lockdown, she's extended the metaphor to the purest, like, most wholesome edge so that literally the sky is falling. And honestly, like, when it dawned on me that what she'd set up was, like, this whimsical allegory for lockdown, I got a bit emotional. (laughs) Because I felt like it was just, like, a really respectful as well as intriguing way to process Mm -hmm. a lot of the current feelings in the world. So Mm -hmm. yeah, as it goes on, the novel becomes less of a pandemic text because there's no disease, but it does become more of an exploration of lockdown, of having to like stop and let go of control over your plans and like build relationships in the face of like inconvenience and cultural difference and things like that yeah so as you can imagine from that little notice from the government it does not take one gc standard day it takes much longer (laughs) it takes much longer than one gc standard day and that's basically the plot and i'm not going to tell any more of the actual events of the plot but that's the premise But Chambers does a lot of really beautiful things in her writing to get across the heart of the COVID experience without dwelling too much on the trauma of it. So for example, after the sky starts to fall, we've had focalised narration up till that point, with like one chapter being from one person's point of view. And that does continue, but some chapters after the sky falls are simply labelled everyone, and those chapters meld all of their narrations together, showing that they're obviously all going through their own private journeys, which are a bit more dramatic and high stakes, but they're also all locked down together, and it's like a collective experience. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I really like that narrative shift. I'm not going to read out a whole everyone chapter, because they're long as hell. (laughs) (laughs) Shifting gears a little bit, all of the characters react differently to the situation, Kind of like you, I could have focused on any one of them and it would have been great. But one of the characters that I found the most interesting and the most fun to read was Pei the soldier, the alien. 
so I wanted to read a little bit from her first stint in her shuttle after the sky falls. Pei was not a stranger to atmosphere aflame, as underlined by her initial reflex to run, move, shoot, react, protect. But Gora was not a war zone. Her guns were in a locker and her real ship was elsewhere, and the Rosk border appeared in the Goran sky as nothing more than one star among millions. The current problem at hand, the sky on fire problem, was taking place in low orbit, and there was nothing a person down here could do to help the people dealing with the mess up there. Nothing but sit in your shuttle and wait, as instructed. Waiting was another activity Pei was accustomed to, but it almost always went hand in hand with preparing. The list of things she had to keep in mind when waiting for something was endless and forever increasing. She had to consider ambushes, crossfire, thievery, arguments, equipment inspections, entry trajectories, exit plans, fuel levels, bulkhead integrity, proper formwork, customs inspectors with no sense of humour, middlemen with no ethical framework, translations and digital stamps and whether or not the shields would hold this time. She had crew she could delegate to handle such things. And a damn good crew, too. But as captain, the buck stopped with her, and there was no issue that didn't require her input, be it your pilot lost an eye or were out of mech again. So in the approximate hour since the emergency message had come through and everyone had retreated to their respective shuttles like good little crash kids, the primary thing Pei felt about the situation in which there was nothing for her to do but follow someone else's instructions and wait for them to do their job was relief. She felt guilty about that. This whole to-do was an ordeal for the people responsible, no question. And the ripple effects were no doubt fucking over the schedules of an entire planet full of people with places to be. She was losing a day of shore leave because of this, and that definitely soured her mood, but she was sure things were far worse for others, with strict schedules and urgent business. No one had died as far as she knew. No one in her immediate locale was hurt. Still, though, harm was harm, and she found herself wrestling between two truths until she realised neither was a zero sum. This wasn't the worst that could happen. It was a bad thing all the same. But all of this consideration was a moot point. She had no control and no responsibility to do anything but sit and wait. That sort of permission was something she was almost never granted. Right or not, relief conquered guilt. She let her shoulders go and her head dip. From where she sat, the idea of anything being wrong seemed preposterous. It was quiet. She felt safe. The garden she'd been walking in earlier was visible through her window, and the angle of the hills beyond the dome was such that she couldn't see the sky at all. She drew her eye back to the garden, which really was lovely in a humble way. It reminded Pei in spirit of the garden at the creche where she'd grown up, the one her father Lei had tended every day. She fondly remembered the triangular beds planted specially with things for kids to poke and nibble at. Nothing bad could ever happen in that place, and she'd felt the same for a moment in Ulu's garden. She knew such sentiments weren't true, that bad things could and did happen anywhere, but it was a nice illusion to buy into temporarily. She allowed herself to continue indulging in that fantasy, even though she knew the view above told a different story. I don't have a whole lot to say about that because I feel like it says a lot for itself, but yeah. lockdown. <laughs> yeah, there, I liked the line about, I can't remember the exact phrase, but like, it could have been worse, but also like it's still pretty bad Yeah, like for you personally. Yeah, that like feeling like your problems are small in comparison to all of these 
mega problems, yeah. but still acknowledging yeah. that it is a problem. And a couple of chapters later, we get a bit more of this privileged side of lockdown and this mental space and contemplation <laughs> that it can bring for pay again. She decides to investigate the Five Hops bathhouse, the interspecies bathhouse. She has not had a relaxation day in a very, very long time because she's a soldier. So I thought I'd read this just because it's really fun. (laughs) The bathhouse, it turned out, was pretty nice. It wasn't huge, like the spas and saunas you'd find in a big city, and it wasn't plush like some of the places she treated her crew to after a long haul. From the outside, the Five Hops bathhouse looked like it had room for maybe six people. Inside, it was quiet, inviting, and sparkling clean. The walls were tiled with affordable faux silicate. It looked decently close to the real thing. And across these, decorative trails of pillowy moss had been coaxed to grow in spiralling lines. The floor was so polished that Pei could almost make out her reflection in it. And upon seeing this, she wasted no time in removing her boots. She placed them in one of the large cubbies by the entryway intended for this purpose, and her clothing followed in short order. On the other side of the hallway, two rows of automated dispensers were built into the wall, each labelled with a pixel frame. All manner of soaps and scrubs and oils were on offer, and Pei smiled as she imagined Ulu tying herself in knots, trying to narrow down the scale scrub scent that would appeal to besk to andorisks, or a tonic spray that most Harmagians would find suitable. The animated pictures on each dispenser did look tempting, but Pei decided to check out the facilities first. Just as the crammed sign out front had advertised, the bathhouse offered a broad variety of culturally specific bathing fixtures, all of which were installed in a single large room with waist-high dividing walls between. There were curtain rods circling each setup as well, and the intent was clear. If visitors wanted to chat with others, they could, but privacy was equally available. Do you, Ulu's handiwork said. Pei wandered around the room, enjoying the sensation of cool tile on bare soles. She stopped in front of a very familiar apparatus, an alien dowser. This was the traditional way of getting clean. A sustained blast of steamy mist to kill germs and loosen dirt, followed by a single splash of cold water emptied from a tank overhead. Pei had used one of these nearly every day of her life, but she wasn't in the bathhouse because she needed to clean up. She was in the bathhouse to kill time and chill out, And if that was the goal, there was one species who had those things down better than most. She turned her back on the dowser and instead set her eye on the andrisk-style steam bath, a windowed, ovular container made of stone and big enough for a single occupant to walk into. A gate was installed around this for the sake of Harmagian's safety. Harmagian wouldn't dare enter such a contraption anyway, but any steam that escaped when the door was opened would be unkind to their slimy skin. Pei herself was not built for the temperatures Andrisks craved, but she knew from experience that a steam bath was a real treat if you used the button marked with the rectish term for child setting. For years, she'd thought the button read low heat, a small but recoverable blow to her pride. She returned to the dispensers in the hallway and found one containing scented steam tabs. She swiped her wrist over the patch scanner and her round capsule popped out containing two powdery pucks flecked with dried herbs. She decided to be fully andrisk about it and bought a tiny pot of scale scrub as well, salt moss scented, a taste she'd acquired in her travels. 
Andrisk's had much thicker, rougher exterior than her own, but scales were scales, and she'd found that just a tiny bit of scrub used lately gave her a nice shine. She returned to the steam bath, stepped in, closed the door behind her, popped the tabs into the receptacle on the wall, and entered her settings into the control panel. Her implant registered the instantaneous hiss of water being pumped through the hot metal, and continued to let her know that the sound was present. She sat with that feeling for a few seconds, then did something she almost never did when away from the Mavbray. She reached up to her forehead and shut off her implant. Pei had received implant and talk box both when she was small, and it had been so long since she'd known life without them that turning the processor off was always jarring at first. She felt like when she'd reached for her locked-up gun two days prior, startled by the absence of something that wasn't actually part of her, but always came along for the ride. After a few seconds, the weirdness wore off and Pei allowed herself to be cradled by the silence. Not silence in the way that other species spoke of silence. When hearing species said silence, they meant I can hear nothing but the wind in the leaves or no one is speaking but the sounds of the city are still present. That wasn't true silence. Real silence. Her species' natural state. The only time Pei realised how tiring it was for her brain to constantly process a type of input it wasn't built for was when she made the decision to shut it out. The silence wasn't enough to fix the mental discomfort she'd awoken with, but it did make her care about it less. And right then, that would do. A smooth lounging stone stood in the middle of the steam bath, its shape intended for the face-down posture of someone with strong haunches and a long tail. Pei had neither, but she lay on her belly anyway, wrapping her arms and legs around the stone, letting her shin and forearms settle into the grooves carved for that purpose. Scented steam began to billow from the tiny nozzles embedded through the walls and the ceiling. She watched it swirl, felt it pull her airways wide. As her body let go, her mind took its cue to wander, and in doing so, pulled itself towards the inevitable topic of Ashby. The man himself wasn't the problem. He was what made problems bearable. And I'll leave it there. Oh, that sounds nice. Doesn't it sound so nice? I just want to be there. I just want to be in that little bathhouse. But yeah, the reason that I chose that scene was partly because I loved all the cool little details about how all the different bodies would react to things. Yeah. I just think it's fun world building. It reminded me of the scenes like the prefect's bathroom in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. (laughs) Yeah. Or like, I don't know, like the palace bedroom montage in the Princess Diaries too. Like where she first goes in <laughs> and she like sees all the stuff. Yeah. I don't know, it's just like so luxurious, it's so joyful to read. But I also think that it was, on a more literary note, it was a great way of capturing that feeling that definitely permeated lockdown one where people were trying to like take advantage of the pause in real life and like figure themselves mm-hmm. out and come to terms with things that they could control I don't know, I just feel like it really captured the zeitgeist. Yeah, I think you could make a comparison between her, like, turning that off and, like, turning your phone off. Yeah. And, like, not checking your phone all the time. 100%. Which is something I feel yes. <laughs> all the time. Definitely. <laughs> and I think especially, yeah, it's like when she said, like, that thing about something that your brain was never wired for and being able to turn it yeah. off. And I feel like... I read an article the other day about the pandemic and how this neuroscientists were saying everyone's in like a prolonged heightened state of stress that your brain was never built for. And so like when people are like, no, I can't watch the news. No, I can't like deal with this. It is like your brain trying to protect itself. So I don't know. I felt that was a good little 
metaphor. And I have one more scene that I'm going to share, and it's along similar lines. It focuses on another part of like lockdown culture, which I've really enjoyed, and which is pertinent to this podcast. Passion projects. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah, it's literally just another scene. I don't think it's as long as that one. But this is where Roveg, our connoisseur of art and fine dining, notices a shabby little building on the Five Hop Complex called the Gora Natural History Museum. The building was the same shape as the other prefab bubbles that comprised the Five Hop, but that was where the similarity ended. The outside had been painted in amateur fashion and drab monochrome with images of erupting volcanoes, careening meteorites, glittering gems, and... and some shapes. The shapes had meaning, Roveg was sure, but whatever the artist's intent had been, it was lost in the execution. He stood pondering one lopsided blob that was probably a cliff. Maybe a rock. Could also be a water tank if you turned your head to the side. There was no way to be sure. A sign hung above the entrance to the building, its style quite unlike that of its prodigious cousins. This sign was engraved, not printed, and embellished with thick lacquer and faux metal highlights, a custom order commissioned by someone who wanted it to look elegant but without the means for heavy expense. The sign read, The Gorin Natural History Museum, established GC Standard 304, Head Curator Tupo. A beaded curtain hung beneath the sign. Roveg passed through it, taking a moment to disentangle a few of the strings from where they caught it in the ridges of his shell. He took in his surroundings and his heart melted. All stars, he chuckled to himself. The Gorin Natural History Museum consisted of a single room crammed with tables, and atop the tables lay, well, rocks mostly. There were big rocks and small rocks, rocks in boxes, rocks in stacks, rocks atop sagging pedestals, shards and pebbles and vials of dirt. The ostensible exhibits were marked with placards made from the same printer as the rest of the Five Hops signage and proclaimed titles like Planetary Formation, Early Eras and Anthropological Relics. This last sign was posted above the only table in the Gorin Natural History Museum which did not contain rocks, but rather everyday bits and bobs that appeared to have fallen out of the pockets of dozens of travellers. Every cheap gadget and forgotten trinket was displayed and labelled as though it were a precious treasure. Rovig thought that perhaps to the curator that's exactly what they were. Outside, someone came running, four paws hitting the path hard. The sound grew closer and closer until at last Tupo burst through the curtain with a loud clatter, nearly getting their feet tangled in the beaded string as they skidded to the halt. Welcome to my museum, Tupo gasped. There was glee in their voice, a sound that had been completely absent when Tupo had greeted Roveg at the airlock, or offered him cakes in the garden, or recited anything that had been in their mother's idea. But said glee was somewhat smothered as the child was out of breath. Lungs were limited in that respect, Roveg had learned. He was always grateful for the much more sensible layout of his multiple abdominal airways. If you have if you have any questions, oh, hang on. Tupo rested their head against the back of their lower neck and tried to catch their breath. I was in the kitchen when I saw you come in. Sorry, should I have found you before entering? Roveg asked. He hadn't seen any signage out front about checking in or buying a ticket or anything like that. If there was one thing he was sure about at the five hop is that there was a sign for everything. Yeah, no, it's always it's always open. 
Tupo's breaths were beginning to steady. It's just not a lot of people come in here, so I got excited. She pulled her head over to a respectable angle and looked at Roveg with huge, eager eyes. Can I give you the tour? Roveg's initial intent upon entering the building had been to simply take a peek at the place, and his impression once he'd come through the door had not given him any desire to stay long, but the situation had changed. Now he had but one goal, and that was to give his full, undivided attention to the head curator. He'd have been a monster to do otherwise. Tipo, he said, I would love to see your tour. The child began to glow. Cool, Tipo said. Have you been to a natural history museum before? I have indeed. It's really hard running a natural history museum on Gora. Because visitors are so unpredictable? No, because there's no life here. Ah, Rovek said. Yes, I can see how that might affect the study of natural history. The little Laru looked at their displays and huffed. Everybody has such high expectations, she said, delivering this opinion with the gravity of someone far more mature. They think natural history museums have to have fossils or plants or bugs and stuff, and I'm here to tell you that no, they don't, she gestured proudly at their displays. Rocks are natural and they have a history and they're awesome. I quite agree, but I do have a question. Okay. And you'll have to forgive me as I'm not a scientist. Roveg said this with all the courtesy he would utilise in a professional setting. If your study is primarily rocks, is your field not geology? Tupo waggled their neck in acknowledgement. That's what mum said at first, but listen, I've done a lot of sims of natural history museums and they all have the same story. Tupo rose up and walked on their back legs so as to be able to gesture with both forepaws. You start with planetary formation, how the planet got here. As he pointed to the first table, which held a stick and ball model of the trend system, an easy thing to make when you only had two orbital bodies, plus an ancient scrib that was playing a pop-up pixel projection of a planetary disk formation on a loop. Tupo nodded at the scrib apologetically. I couldn't find a vid of trend, so that's a vid of Hagarim, but all planets happen the same way. Yes, I see, Roveg said. And there's no shame in using a different vid. This one gets the message across. I'd say that was a good educational instinct. Tupo beamed and continued on. Okay, so then there's rocks. Stars, yes, there were rocks. All tagged and dated diligently. Slate, 158.306, found by Tupo. Nice, 6.305, found by Tupo. Calcite, 184.307, present from the Ashkit Feather family. Who's the Ashikit Feather family? Roveg asked. They own the Tet house north of here, Tupo said. We're neighbours, I guess. Mum gives them a discount on fuel and they give her a discount on... Um, I don't know. I'm not supposed to go there yet. I would imagine not. Because there's sex there. <laughs> yes, I'm aware of what a Tet house is, thank you. It's usually Herrick who comes to buy fuel and he's all he always brings me cool rocks that they find if they go outside their dome. He's nice. Anyway, you can learn a lot from rocks. Tupo paused again as they stared at their mass collection, seemingly overwhelmed by choice. Do you know what an igneous rock is? Yes. What about a sedimentary rock? Yes, I know those too. Okay. Tupo paused again, at a loss. Well, you can just read the labels then. I will, Rovek said. By this he meant he would skim them, but he kept that to himself. Oh, and also... 
Tupo ran over <laughs> to a table off to the side that held an old-fashioned portable data server and an access monitor, both of which looked like well-loved hand-me-downs. You can access the GC reference files here if you want to look up something you don't know about. Ah, you run a storage node, Roveg said approvingly. Excellent. I have a number of friends who volunteer for their reference files, and they're always on the prowl to find people willing to maintain nodes. Keeps the whole network more robust, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. I mean, I know I could just go on my scrib and access it through the linkings, but I think this is cooler. It is cooler. And since you can't get on the linkings right now, at least you've got this, hmm? He looked back to the other tables. So explain to me how rocks fit into this omni story you see at every museum. Alright, okay, so you have a planet. It's full of rocks and the rocks tell you stuff about how things used to be on the planet. There basically wasn't anything on Gora ever. Well, there were volcanoes once, but not anymore. They're dead. And there wasn't any water, so we don't have as many kinds of rocks as other places. But we do have some pretty ones from where the volcanoes used to be. Look, this is my favourite. Tupo picked up an unpolished gemstone for Roveg to see, murky blue and flecked with black. That's a nice piece, Roveg said. Have you ever thought about polishing it? None of my rocks are polished, Tupo said firmly. It removes the rock from its proper context, and then people don't know what it really looks like. He paused. Plus, I don't have the stuff you need to polish them. That's fair. So, at other museums, after rocks, you get exhibits about life. And the thing is, there is life on Gora. It just didn't start here. Tupo gestured at the table of anthropological relics. Roveg noticed a broken Harmagian piercing, an empty bottle of white dune, an immaculate andrisk feather, presumably given to the child. It is natural history, Tupo asserted. Life came to Gora, just... Not in the way that most people mean. Roveg started to grasp what Tupo was trying to say. You're arguing that calling your collection natural history rather than geology is valid because life did in fact establish itself here and is therefore a key part of the planet's history. Yeah, exactly. Tupo, I have to say, I've never heard that perspective before, but I truly enjoy it. You should write a thesis one day. Tupo made a face. I hate writing. Well, then stick to curation, because this is a very fine museum. The child shuffled their paws. It's okay. Aww, that's the cutest thing ever. It's so cute! Oh my god, I know that that's a long scene, but oh, my heart when I read it. (laughs) It's so precious. Protect this child. I just, I really love the, the geekiness and... Like, the way that she's captured people's sort of childlike enthusiasm for their hobbies that Mm. we've all gone through lately. Like, the way that that's become cool again, to be really Mm. geeky about what you like and be really passionate and have, like, a project even if it's not good. (laughs) And to just do it for fun. I think that's, like, a really beautiful part of, like, lockdown culture and that scene made me, like, feel it in my bones. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, honestly, I don't have anything major to say other than that. I feel like I've only barely scratched the surface of the book and the series in general because it is just wonderful and it manages to delve into some really deep emotional storylines. There is a fair bit of angst in it. But Mm. what made me infatuated with it right now is that the galaxy and the ground within has managed to answer that question of 
what kind of COVID novel would be acceptable to you just now. Yeah. Because I think it's managed to convey all the complexities of the situation we're in right now. And it does have very real, like, terror in it. Without commercialising the suffering or, like, playing on the sense of, like, grief that the world is going through at the moment. Yeah. And instead, like, it focuses mainly on the possibilities for good through education and social change that can come out of the situation. So yeah, it just feels like a really accurate and appropriate time capsule of people's experience. I loved it so much. (laughs) That sounds great, and I have never read that series before but it does sound very good it is very good like i say it's there there is a lot of like compelling angst and like bad stuff does happen and there's a lot of deep emotion in it but it also has so much joy and like levity in it yeah and that's that's what i wanted to bring today so nice love that yeah So, do you have a quickfire favourite for this week? Yeah, my favourite this week is a song. Nice. It's not a new song, but it's new to me. It's The Outlaw Josie Wales by Zella Day. So I have listened to random Zella Day songs for a couple of years now, but after listening to this song, I have listened to her entire discography. Oh. And she's great. The Outlaw Josie Wales is inspired by a Clint Eastwood film of the same name, which I have very little knowledge of because I don't like westerns. But <laughs> but I do weirdly like western-inspired music mm-hmm. and Zella Day describes her music, at least from this album, as part spaghetti western. Oh, nice. Yeah, so it definitely feels like a modern version of a song in a western, you know, when they're like singing about a legendary outlaw mm-hmm. and they're like telling a story through the song it's it's like she's taken that tradition and turned it into something new the song starts with stealing money from the town storms coming and you've been running from the dark clouds no one can catch you now it's like no one no one knows where you came from the song's great i weirdly found it on a playlist inspired by the Disney film Brave. Okay. So if you imagine adventuring and longing to be free and running from the law, that's what this song is. It's very hard to describe, but I just, I recommend you'll listen to it because it's really good. It does sound good. There seems to be a lot of like, (laughs) a big like Americana sort of Western resurgence. Maybe it's because they're like, really open planes and like freedom and that's what everyone wants right now but I've seen lots of that yeah possibly I mean this album's from 2015 oh. but it is interesting that's a good point actually it might it might be that we're all longing for freedom <laughs> <laughs> it's just weird like I feel like I've talked about cowboys more in the last couple of months than I ever have in my entire life well I suppose it's just like another kind of escapism isn't it it's a bit like fantasy yeah kind of but yeah, I, I think you really like her music because, you know, she's a cool female singer. Yeah, so, so I like her. I, I was actually like, wow, <laughs> Emily's bringing, she's bringing me a lady singer. I'm so excited. I know, it's very rare for me. <laughs> but yeah, what is your quickfire favourite? My quickfire favourite is also a song and it is called Dating a Drug Dealer by The Sunshine State. And it came out, <laughs> it came out just last week. It's so happy and so fun 
So we've got a rare actual upbeat bop from Rebecca. (laughs) But yeah, the song is basically about dating someone and getting totally spoiled and knowing that the person shouldn't be able to afford to spoil you that much, but just kind of rolling with it anyway. (laughs) And the Taurus vibes are strong (laughs) in this Mm. song. The hook is basically the less I know the better. The chorus is... The less I know, the less I know, the better. Ever since I met you, the more I want to let you love me. Don't want to know, don't even got to mention how you got your mansion. It's okay, just come and love me. (laughs) I like that. Yeah, I love it. It's basically like if Lana Del Rey was happy and like wore roller skates. That's what it sounds like. (laughs) So yeah, I definitely recommend that to brighten brighten your day. have a route for us? I do have a route. So at the time that we are recording this, it's about to be Mother's Day in the UK. And as such, I have been looking a lot of cards and thinking about the different terms of endearment that we use to refer to our mothers and Mm. how they all seem to be variations on the same word. Because you've got like mum, mom, mam, ma, ma, you know loads but why the variations this is what my brain asks me and particularly Mm. particularly how the fuck do the march sisters end up referring to their mother as marmy yeah m-a-r-m-e-e what so yeah i went to i went to find out and honestly the answer is not that surprising but it's interesting so i thought i'd just share it okay so according to an article in unravel magazine Language scholars seem to think that it's a mix of two things. The first is the fact that words at one time were spelt according to how they sounded and that gradually that changed to being pronounced according to how they were spelled. So initially accents shaped spellings, but then those spellings took on lives and shaped accents once they were written down. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Right. The second reason is that the sound ma is considered a linguistic universal to refer to the motherly figures in Indo-European languages. So Greek has mame, Persian mama, Russian and Lithuanian mama, German mome, and linguists also believe that m is one of the first sound units that babies can produce which is possibly the reason that ma is such a common sound for a baby's mother. So you can see how all of this came together to mean that we have a million different words that all sound like ma. Yeah. (laughs) But for anyone wondering specifically about the little women thing, because once that occurred to me, then I had to also go and find that out. (laughs) The answer to that is that Louisa May Alcott, having grown up in eastern Massachusetts, probably had what's called a non-rhotic accent so she dropped her r's meaning that what we read as marmy because we're scottish and we say the r's was probably just a way of writing mommy in that accent so it sounds like mommy i see so it's almost like she put an r in because her accent made it sound like there was a dropped r but there was never a dropped r which is interesting so yeah there's there's a little (laughs) History of the word mum for you to delight the motherly figures in your life with. (laughs) I'm sure they'll love to hear that. Yeah, I'm sure they'll love that. (laughs) 
I'm gonna tell my mum this on Mother's Day and I wonder if she'll make it through my entire explanation before she's been like <laughs> shut up Rebecca <laughs> do you have an insight for us I do so I have been researching Cornish folklore and legends for the novel that I'm writing mm-hmm. and there's been so there just are so many great ones from that area so I thought it could be fun to share some every now and then on here yeah because through internet research and books I've read and also just spending a lot of time in Cornwall um, I have a lot of stories so for anyone who doesn't know Cornwall is the southernmost point of England in the UK and it's a very superstitious place. Mm. If you believe in ley lines, (laughs) there are ley lines that cross in Cornwall and that supposedly brings a lot of mystical energy to the place. So Cornwall is also known for tin mining, among other things, although I don't actually think there's any active mines anymore. There are definitely plenty of signs when you're walking around the coast that tell you to watch out for disused mine shafts, which is just adds a bit of terror to your <laughs> to your walk. <laughs> Disconcerting. We love that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, today I thought I would share some stories about the mines in Cornwall. So I'll start by saying that tin miners have their own weird superstitions. One is if they came across a snail on the way to work, they would give it some of their dinner, which was often a Cornish pasty. And this was supposed to give them good luck. That's so cute. (laughs) Also, a miner would never say the word cat when down the mine, because apparently cats are bad luck. And if a cat was found in or around the mine, then the men would not work again until the cat had been killed. That's barbaric! (laughs) I know. And it's also apparently unlucky to whistle down mines because it will annoy the knockers. So knockers are Cornish creatures who live down the tin mines. They are typically believed to be the spirits of miners who died in mining accidents. And the name comes from the knocking on mine walls that happens just before cave-ins. So the creaking of earth and timber before it gives way sounds like knocking. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah. I don't (laughs) like that. So to some people, knockers are malevolent spirits and the knocking was the sound of them hammering at walls and supports to cause the cave-ins but others saw the knocking as warning the miners that a collapse was coming so they would know to get out Mm. so either way the miners would leave the last bite of their pasties for the knockers either to thank them for protecting them or as an offering to not be crushed to death in a mine by them. And and that is my mining superstitions from Cornwall today. <laughs> Man, the seven dwarves would not be popular in Cornwall because they were eye-whistling. <laughs> <laughs> True. True. Whistle well, you work not in Cornwall. Not in Cornwall. No. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Right, 
do you have a question for us? I do have a question. So this question is from our International Women's Day themed call for questions. And it was submitted by our beloved Stephanie, who we had on as our first ever guest. And she asks, what do each of you personally think makes a strong female character? Oh, that's a good question. Like, my gut answer is a female character that does not need to be saved, but is able to ask for help when she needs it. Mm. Like, I think that's the balance that I want to see these days, because I think we went from, like, damsel in distress to cold and emotionless badass. Yeah. And those were both trends that had their place, but I would like someone that is warm and empathetic, but still capable and badass. Yep, I'd agree. I'd say, yeah, like a character who's badass, but a character who's flawed maybe as well. Mm. And who, yeah, does need to ask for help. I'd say even if they're badass, they still have like a heart to them. They're still like compassionate. Yeah. I think that makes a strong person. Vulnerability. Yeah, say that. That's actually one thing I really like about the Six of Crows series. Or actually Ninth House as well. The fact that Lee Bardugo has made like female characters who they are really cool and they like kick ass and they're like, you love them for that, but also they have flaws and they care very deeply and I don't know they're just three-dimensional <laughs> yeah I feel like the answer to what makes a strong female character is just what makes a strong character you know yeah like, yeah definitely like I want yeah. these specific things from my female characters because they've been underrepresented or misrepresented in the past so it's yeah. a valid question to say like what do you want in a strong female character but also just like the same as any strong character. Yeah, like all the things we said, I would very much like in a male character as well. Exactly. But yeah, I do think that it's like an interesting question. I think that the idea of what a strong female lead is has gone through a lot of shifts. So Mm -hmm. that that was interesting to consider. I like that we're getting less of the like traumatised lone wolf female character because that felt like that was a big thing for a long time but it was just copying like masculine stereotypes but making it a woman yeah yeah whereas like when stephanie was talking about the priory of the orange tree and that was that had a lot of female characters but they all seemed to have a lot of like i don't want to say like maternal instinct because that's not what i mean but like that very like familial like nurturing feminine vibe they all seem to have Mm -hmm. that but they all had like fucking daggers and shit yeah (laughs) i appreciate that yeah like one thing i love about inej the character that i said i really liked is she's also like an assassin so she's killed some people but she actually like she does struggle with that Mm. which i think is quite cool because i think often you do get the badass character whether it's male or female Mm -hmm. who like they just kind of kill people and that's like that's it (laughs) <laughs> they don't seem to have a conscience about it. Yeah, or they'll be like, oh, you just have to like switch off from it. Like, you can't, you can't think about it. That's the job. Like, so yeah, I definitely think like there's way more female characters I actually like now these days. Because I feel like when I was a bit younger, I would have probably I read quite a few books where there was a female lead and they were meant to be really like strong female character, and I just found them quite boring. <laughs> 
Yeah, or there was like the opposite where it maybe if it wasn't genre fiction and it was like realist fiction, it was always very manic pixie dream girl. Mm, yeah. And you're like, oh, I don't want that either though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I think we're, we're moving in the right direction. Definitely, that was a good question. Yeah, thanks, Stephanie. After that very exciting and long episode, <laughs> I think we're done. Yes, we are finished. Our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. So please send us your comments and questions there. And we also have social media, which is linked in the show notes, along with everything we talked about today, including the Infatuated Mix, which has all the music. Also, I'm going to plug my Spotify again and put my Six of Crows playlist in there. Yes! Because, you know, it's on theme. And, yes, please rate and review us on your podcast apps, because that helps us get seen by other people yes and please share anything on social media (laughs) that appeals to you interact with us tell us what you like tell us what you don't like if it's us that you don't like don't tell us that because we don't care (laughs) but yeah have a lovely springtime this is start springtime very excited and we will see you next time see you then Bye. bye